I'm Alexis. I'm Mallory. And this is Newtcast. special treat for you today. We have a special guest, our resident historian and number one fan, Marin. Why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? Okay, my name is Marin. Um, I'm a Slytherin. I'm from California. Um, my favorite Harry Potter character is James Potter. Ooh. The Marauders era, not next gen. Nice. What's your Ilvermorny house? I don't know because I can't get on Pottermore again to like sort myself into it because what? they won't let me. What? I know, I tried like three times. I need to try again. Okay, well, we'll come back to you. All right. We'll make sure this is announced. <laughs> All right, quick note. If you like the show, be sure to leave us a review on iTunes so that other people can find us. And also feel free to subscribe to the show so you never miss an episode. All right, today we are going to be talking about The Wizarding World of North America, which is four different little essays on Pottermore. Yeah, these essays were released a few months ago, so they might seem a little bit old, but we figured that... As Fantastic Beasts is coming out, we're assuming that this has a lot to do with that movie, and so we wanted to get prepared again. I know I've forgotten a lot about these writings. I wondered while I was reading it, I was like, did I actually read these? Because I have almost no memory of this, but I did read them. I just, yeah, I didn't remember most of it. Before we get into that, Potter Watch. Any news, Mallory? So, there's a few bits of news I thought we might want to talk about. Um, The first one for Cursed Child. J.K. Rowling released a statement, I guess, saying that we should consider the Cursed Child canon. How do we feel about that? I feel like we can't say it's not because it's hers. Yeah. Well, I also feel like stories belong to the people that that read them. Mm -hmm. And in this day and age, like, there's more ways than ever to make characters your own. So I feel like it's really a personal decision to decide if it's canon or not. Because, like, if you hate it, you can just treat it like fan fiction. Like, it doesn't matter. Right. We are going to talk in a later episode about what we think canon actually means. Um, So we're not going to get into that too much. But that is something to consider as we go through the things we're going to talk about today. Moving on to Pottermore. There was a job listing on this job site called Gorkana, which I guess is a British site. I'd never seen it before. (laughs) But it was calling for freelance writers with a strong working knowledge of the Harry Potter series to work for the Pottermore website. So this kind of made me wonder, just how much of the writing on Pottermore is J.K. Rowling's writing and how much of it is sourced from other writers that she just kind of looks at and gives her stamp of approval? I think that in the early Pottermore series that they would release things written by J.K. Rowling. Her stamp of, I wrote this, was on every piece. And I don't think, maybe it's on this one, but I don't, I didn't see on these Wizarding World segments written by J.K. Rowling. Hmm. So I'm curious to know whether or not she wrote these. Um, They're definitely written in a different style than we're used to in Harry Potter because they're not stories. They're not meant to be written like Harry Potter, right? We get the idea that it's all informational. It's like you're reading a textbook. Yeah. But did she write them? We have, like, reason to doubt it since her name isn't expressly written underneath. And that's something else to talk about when we start considering what canon means. Exactly. Is it canon if she didn't write it, but it's under her website? That's going to be a wild episode, guys. (laughs) Stay tuned. (laughs) There might be a lot of arguing. (laughs) 
The bigger bit of Pottermore news that more people have heard of is that there are three new ebooks to be released on September 6th, each one about different aspects of Hogwarts, and they're calling it Pottermore Presents. They're going to contain information mostly already on Pottermore, but there are going to be some new bits of content in the short stories from Hogwarts of Power, Political, and Pesky Poltergeists, and short stories from Hogwarts of Heroism, Hardship, and Dangerous Hobbies. All I can see when I read these titles is the alliterations. <laughs> <laughs> I'm such a sucker for alliterations. Anyway, so those two are going to have some new information, and it looks like the other one, which is Hogwarts, An Incomplete and Unreliable Guide, is going to have all stuff that's already on Pottermore. The political one is supposed to talk about the quote-unquote dark side of wizarding world. So there's supposed to be stuff about the Ministry, the history of Azkaban... Um, some more stuff about Slughorn, which I'm assuming is going to have to do with him and Tom Riddle. And then the last one is going to be focused on the staff of Hogwarts. Professor Kettleburn and McGonagall were specifically mentioned. We've already gotten a bit of backstory on McGonagall, so I don't know if there's going to be more on her. I would like that, but... Well, we, like, know of... nothing about Professor Kettleburn. Yeah. I so know. that's exciting. I'm really excited for Professor Kettleburn because I'm pretty sure she's a Hufflepuff. I might have just made that up. <laughs> <laughs> I don't remember ever reading that, but... It's probably just in my head. It's... <laughs> I'm looking it up right now. <laughs> it's perfectly plausible, and I mean, if Alexis is going to assume someone's house, we all know that it's going to go into Hufflepuffs. <laughs> oh, yeah. Harry Potter Wiki definitely confirms she's yeah. a Hufflepuff. Awesome. So we're looking forward to that. We'll probably be talking about that a bit in the next episode. I've heard some complaints from some people that they're trying to put these essays that were previously for free online kind of behind a pay barrier. I did read somewhere that the person who was, like, behind compiling them, she said that they had writings from J.K. Rowling in their archive that they weren't able to release yet, or, you know, it just wasn't the right time. So I'm thinking that she was just wanting to release that, and there was no Pottermore to release that onto. That makes sense. And then in Fantastic Beasts news, we got more info on Ezra Miller's character. We'll keep this very simple. I'll so just Mallory... plug my ears. <laughs> you do your thing. No, we're not going to talk about that too much right now because I just we'll get into things later. Um, Zoe Kravitz is also going to be part of the first movie in a little bit. She's going to be more into the later movies. We have no idea who she's playing. So that's ex insanely exciting, considering how late in the game she's coming in. And there's a new type of magic. We'll get into that later in a different episode. And <laughs> NBC Universal acquired the rights to both Harry Potter and the Fantastic Beasts series, which is huge. Which means no more ABC family marathons, but... it's kind of sad. That is sad. <laughs> they will be playing these movies on sci-fi and some other channel, I forgot. I'm just so used to it. Anytime you turn on ABC... <laughs> it's Harry Potter. Well, they're playing Harry Potter. <laughs> Shocker. And so... The interesting thing about this is that they can now use film from both of those series in Wizarding World of Harry Potter. Mm. So it'll be very cool to see Fantastic Beasts starting to mold into the wizarding world atmosphere. I'm really interested to see how they're going to handle two different time periods in one park, if that happens, but it should. Also, some people are theorizing that there might be a TV spinoff, just because everyone is doing a TV spinoff these days. Well, and that's my dearest desire, too, so I hope so. If I've always wanted these to be make, made into a TV series. If it's a TV series, it has to be Marauders. <laughs> like, if not, I will protest. I need it. There's that whole, like, horrors thing that yeah. they made once that would look really cool that'd also be cool the founders that would be mm -hmm. amazing yeah <laughs> gosh there's so many possibilities 
yeah, they definitely should be doing that. But anyway, but they've got from now until I die to do it. So <laughs> yeah, fine. no rush, no rush. After that, they have to be done though. <laughs> All right, so now we're into the main segment, the suitcase which is the Wizarding World of North America. We have a lot to cover this episode, again. (laughs) So questions to consider as we're going through each of these segments is how Wizarding History of North America holds up to its nomad history. Some people were thinking that this is a very negative view of America. So is that fair? And is there good to be had still in this writing? And what from this history will be used to deepen the world of fantastic beasts? This is going to be very fun to talk about with Marin. Because Marin is studying history right now. Yeah, and I love colonial America. So, like, the beginning of this, or we're going through, like, the 14th to 17th century, like... This is your jam. This is my jam. Awesome. So, let's hit it. 14th to 17th century. Okay, Okay, let's go. So, like, the very first sentence in this section is that wizards knew about America, like, way before muggles did. Right. Which just makes me think of all these possibilities, because... If you know me, you know that I'm completely obsessed with the colony of Roanoke and what happened to (laughs) Roanoke. So if you don't know what that colony was, it was a colony set up by the English in North America for the express purpose of pirating Spanish ships. But then England was like, we'll send you supplies every year, but then they miss a year. And then when they come back, everyone's gone. And no one knows what's happening. And so now I'm just thinking about how there's probably wizards in that Roanoke colony. And how maybe they decided to, like, after the English didn't come with their food, they were like, well, maybe we'll just go find some Native American wizards and just, like, chill out with them. I should have known you were going to bring up Roanoke. I know, right? Why didn't this occur to me? We've had so many late night discussions where she'll go on for, like, an hour. <laughs> I will say that I'm having a little bit of trouble with nomads just working it into my vocabulary. Really? Because, I mean, the word muggle is just as silly as nomad, but I'm mm-hmm. so used to it right. that I know how to work it in and I know how to say things like muggle-born or whatever. Like, what do you call a muggle-born for nomad? Nomad-born? Yeah, they that say it in this writing. Really? I noticed that. Yeah, you like don't even realize they're saying muggle-born because they say nomad-born and your brain just skips over it. So, like, I had to read it four times and I finally understood it. It's so, so I keep slipping up, and I probably will while we're talking about this today, but yeah, the still whole, working on it. The whole idea of Nomad, it caused quite a stir in the Harry Potter fandom when it first was released, and most people hated it. Any podcast that I listened to definitely did not want to accept this word, but I feel like since we're now more removed from when it was first released, and we have more things to hate, people <laughs> are pretty much okay with Nomad. <laughs> it's just hard to get used to, that's all it is, because yeah. we're so used to the term muggle. I think it's so American, though. When I first heard it, I 100% accepted it. But yeah, it does definitely takes getting used to, which I think was probably the case for most things, including, like, Hermione's name, which is a weird name, but it's normal now. Okay, yeah, for the first, like, two years as I read the series, I called her Hermione. Exactly. So, <laughs> just takes some getting used to. Um, the essay does mention that visions and premonitions were used as a form of communication, and that's one of the reasons that, like, these different wizarding communities across the world knew about each other. That makes me wonder, was divination more accepted generally as a form of magic than it came to be around Harry's time? Like, was it considered more practical magic back then? Because that sounds pretty divination-y. This got me really excited. (laughs) 
Also, when you take into account that the Native Americans were wandless, it makes sense that they would cultivate divination themselves right. because that's one of their forms of wandless magic. So right. they would have gotten really good at it. Yeah. And something that is very interesting is that the only other country we know of that does not use wands very much is Africa. And of course, you know, there's a huge African in- influence as slavery is introduced into the New World. Right. So it makes me really wonder how wandless magic is just used and how it grows because these two different ways of using magic without wands comes together in this history. And I'm also wondering if this is part of a magic that will come forth in Fantastic Beasts because they keep saying there are parts of the magic that we're going to learn more about that we didn't know about previously. And I think America would be a great place to introduce wandless magic considering its history. And it does say later on in one of the other essays that once Ilvermorny had become like this great school, then everyone knew how to use wands. Right. But it doesn't mention whether wandless magic was still practiced. Oh, in my head it so, so is. <laughs> it better be. Yeah, because we think that it would be. Yeah, because the Native Americans, it says that they had gotten so good at things like potions and yeah. and things like that just because that was their only forms of wandless magic that they could actually participate in. Yeah, they, it mentions that Native American community is very gifted in animal and plant magic, which is perfect for Newt Scamander, mm-hmm. yeah. who is super interested in that as well. I think we have a lot of reasons to believe that that will come into play when Newt enters the Wizarding World here. Also in Ilvermorny, they do mention Native Americans being around for the very start of the school, and I feel like they're probably going to be teaching a lot to the wand, wanded wizards, um, just as the wand wizards will be teaching them. Did that make sense? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Okay, great. <laughs> And, like, just as we're on the subject of Native Americans, you mentioned here that it is a touchy subject, and it is a touchy subject, and for good reason, because there's so much nasty stuff that went on in this history, and it's so hard to do any sort of justice in an essay that's five paragraphs long. Mm -hmm. So it's just hard to give a fair representation, especially because it says North America, but the focus of this is pretty much, like, the 13 colonies, so... What does this mean for, like, the California area of North America, or Mexico, or Alaska and Canada? Like, we don't know. There's so much going on. Right, and I I like that she did try to complicate it in saying that magical North Americans were either accepted and lauded, or they were stigmatized for their beliefs. So there was a lot of magic going on that was accepted, just as there was magic that was unaccepted. And I think the biggest issue that people have with this Native American part of the writing is when she goes into skinwalkers, and she sort of adopts that tradition into her magic system. Um, Especially the way it's written, she mentions that it's known as being evil, that there's a rumor that they sacrificed close family members to do it, and there were rumors that originated with medicine men who were faking magical powers. And so I think those three things sort of mixing together makes it a little bit fuzzy, as opposed to being a positive look at the Native Americans and the potential magic they might have had to more of a negative one. Something that really we suffer from because of the brevity of these is just the lack of diversity when it comes to the look at Native American magic. Like, if this was longer, the first thing I'd want to see is the difference between different tribes because she only mentions different tribes when she talks about specific people like so-and-so of this origin. But, you know, there's so many different tribes of Native Americans, so how would the ones who originated from places like Vermont, where there's lots of woods mountains differ from places like Nebraska or like the Great Plains area where like if they're making potions they're not going to have nearly as much diversity in plants and animals to work with so what would their potions have looked like Mm -hmm. there's just a lot I want to know 
about right. it. Well, yeah, also, <laughs> like, how in touch were the wizards of the Native Americans? Like, did they know about their wizard counterparts, like, all the way across, like, in California if they were in Vermont? Like, did they... Hmm, well, I figure if they knew about idea. the ones in Africa and Europe... Right, they, they should know, know right? And also, like, how would that affect their loyalty as far as when one tribe would go to war with another? Like, would they have more loyalty to their magical brethren, or would they stick with their tribe? And then how would that affect their trading system? Because, like, they would be trading with wizards all the way across the country so that they could be able to get those potion ingredients. Like... Is that whole thing about World War One that is mentioned later on that I definitely bring up? Well, and with that too, like she mentions World War One, but what about all the other wars? I know <laughs> that was kind of just a bit of her British coming out there, like, hey, they participated in this war, and I'm like, well, we we fought a lot of wars. <laughs> <laughs> we pretty much are always fighting, right? So, what about the Civil War? What about the American Revolution? What about the right. War of 1812? Like, there's so much going on. Um, something to note is with the wandless magic. That in the Harry Potter series, it's seen as a very negative thing. You have the wandless in the very last book, who are the the wizards who were muggle-born, who lost their wands, and are now begging on the street. And so it's interesting because in a British perspective, wandless definitely means weaker, definitely means less important. And so I think that's almost, that's very hard to chew, considering she's now taken away the idea of wands from Native Americans. But I hope that by adding in the fact that wandless magic can be very powerful, that they are able to do transfiguration just as well, if not more so, than their European counterparts, that she's saving face a little bit in that. And in my theory, wandless magic is just as powerful, if not more so, because they have greater control without need of a handicap being the wand. That's just my thoughts. Uh, this is just a very difficult thing to talk about, and I'm definitely not well-equipped for it. <laughs> That's why we have Marin here. <laughs> <laughs> I personally would like to know more about how wandless magic would be taught, just in general. Like, how do you pass that on? I mean, it can't all just be, like, the instinctive bursts of magic that we see from Harry when he's mm-hmm. in moments of distress. There's, so, do they use words at all? Okay, I was thinking about this last night. As I was laying in bed trying to sleep. Okay, because I thought this was so interesting, because not only do Europeans use wands, they also use Latin. Native Americans don't know oh, Latin. Exactly. I was just going And so, is so Latin the same, does it work in the same way as wands, and that is just a way to channel the magic, and a way to, like, amplify this specific spell? Or is it just words? Like, if I was a wizard, could I just say light and, like, do the Lumos spell, you it's, know? Like, it's gotta be. Like, there's gotta be variations because, I mean, she talks in a different area of Pottermore about Japanese wizards. They clearly are not gonna have a whole lot of Latin going on in their language, but they use wands. Yeah. So what are their um, magic words? Yeah, so how do words play into the magic system? That's my Maybe question. Maybe words are a method of really focusing your thoughts. Okay, I like that. She said that, like, the wand helps you focus your magic, so it makes sense for the words to be a way to focus that magic even more. But it also makes me wonder so much about these different comparable spells. Like, like, to use your example, would saying light or lumos produce a different kind of light? Maybe your idea of what light is. Maybe (laughs) your perspective of the world changes how your magic is. Oh, okay, we're getting a little too deep right now. Wait, wait, what if you're blind? No such thing. (laughs) Well, would you really be casting Lumos if you're blind? (laughs) But could you? That's the question. Like, is that possible? I don't know. Okay, sorry. (laughs) That's a whole other episode. I like it, though. There's nothing that we can talk about, because there's probably nothing that we can go off of until Fantastic Beasts comes out. Yeah. Oh, do you want to talk about diseases? Yeah, sure. 
Okay, so one of the main reasons that European colonization was so successful as it was was because, of course, all the diseases that they brought over from the old world to the new world. So, with the wizards being in contact with each other already, it makes me think that, like, maybe the wizards, the Native American wizards, would have already been in contact with those diseases and would have already become immune to them. It just makes me wonder if the Native Americans that had survived would have been mostly wizards and witches because they would have already become immune to those diseases. Hmm. Interesting. Do we know if they actually have had physical interactions with other wizards, though, or is it just through communications from afar? It said that due to divination, visions, port keys, and apparition. Mm. So they've had physical contact. Oh, ho, ho. there's so much we could... Let's all write a fan fiction, guys. <laughs> <laughs> It'll be called Roanoke. <laughs> a wizard colony. Speaking of creating things, I'm going to go on a wild tangent here, but okay. just for the record, yeah. I am claiming the name of the wizard rock band, Fantastic Beats and Where to Find Them. <laughs> I don't, I can't write music, but I'm just putting my dibs out on that name right now. <laughs> Copyright Mallory Manning. That's right. <laughs> Fantastic beats and where to find them. It's mine. You can't take it. Okay, let's move on. Yeah. <laughs> 17th century and beyond. So we learned that the new world has fewer amenities and a lot harsher conditions. Wizards and witches have to make do with unfamiliar magical plants or potion ingredients and they have to make do with the fact that they don't have wand makers and you have to understand like they wouldn't have a diagonally just to pop over to I'm assuming apparition is probably very difficult between continents. This raises the question for me do wizards farm? Are there wizarding farmers and if not why not? Well, because there's definitely gardens. Yeah, because yeah. Molly Weasley had a garden. Same with uh, Love Goods. And if they were struggling so much for food in this in these early stages of colonization, I would think farming would be the perfect job for a wizard because they could use magic to make their crops grow bigger and help protect them from diseases and thieves. Right. Like, they would be very successful farmers. But the very first people to come over were the Puritans, who, who hated wizards and witches. did not stand the idea of magic. So it makes sense that if you did use magic, you used it very discreetly and probably not very often. Yeah. I mean, actually, though, when you think about it, it would make sense for the wizards to be part of the plantations in the South, because it was Ooh. the North colonies that had the strict religion that yeah. didn't like wizards and witches. But if they went down to the South and was like, I'm going to grow tobacco, who's going to stop them? There's no crazy religious people down there. Whoa. This brought up, like, this whole spiral of questions for me, because then I started wondering, like, how does Hogwarts get all its food? Because we know that food is, like, <laughs> one of those transfiguration you exceptions can't. where you can't just create it out of mo nothing. So right. do they get their food shipped in from muggles? Or what? Huh. What do they do? Maybe Professor Sprout just has, like, a whole bunch of fields in the back <laughs> of Hogwarts. <laughs> does she raise cattle? Hagridwood! <laughs> <laughs> No, he couldn't slaughter cattle. <laughs> <laughs> no, yeah. I wonder if they just order stuff in from muggles and just confound, confound them every time. Or if there's just like some wizard, it's their job to be like <laughs> the, the muggle study provider to like go provide, like go buy all the stuff that Hogwarts needs <laughs> and then bring it to Hogwarts for the grocery of Hogwarts. <laughs> That'd be the greatest job. I'm in. Take me. And then it talks about the hostile social environment, which we already mentioned a little bit. You have the Puritans, and you have conflict now beginning to start between the immigrants and between the Native American population. 
and it says that that struck a blow at the unity of a magical community. For me, it makes me feel as though they wouldn't have had as many problems in the magical community between Native Americans and, and European immigrants, because I feel like they have a common enemy, later on anyway, that grows, that just the nomad immigrants are just terrible to them. So I feel like having that common enemy probably softened the potential to have restlessness between the two groups. I don't know, because it would have been very dangerous for European wizards to align themselves with Native Americans, because mm. they were so incredibly persecuted. True. And so I think it almost would have made it worse. I feel like the European wizards would, wouldn't want to have anything to do with them, because they're here, and they're in this new world where they don't have any of the amenities that they used to have in the old world. They're just trying to make it on their own. They're trying to make sure that the Puritans don't kill them. They just need to lay low and not associate with the Native Americans at all. I'm getting onto the topic of the scours. I'm not going to lie, when I first read the phrase unscrupulous band of wizarding mercenaries, all I could think was wizarding cowboys. <laughs> and I wanted to be a thing so badly. Can you imagine? That would make a great the TV show. That would be the shiz. <laughs> like, wizards, but they don't wear pointed hats. They wear cowboy hats, and they have, like, enchanted spurs, and they have duels at high noon where they face off in town square with their wands. Oh, my gosh. Wizarding they ride Westerns. hippogriffs instead of horses. <sighs> I'm writing the first wizarding western. Just watch for it. <laughs> I'm not even that into westerns, but the idea is just, I'm like, my soul is ignited. I'm so excited about it. Like, magical lassos! (laughs) I thought it was interesting that they said that the scourers would take other wizards captive and, like, sell them. So, showing that slavery happened even within the magical community. Like, that wasn't just a thing that the nomads were doing. Like, that was universal. That made me wonder, was it just black wizards that they would enslave, or was it just anyone? They'd be like, hey, this person is magic, and now they're going to be your slave. Right. And then they would only be able to sell witches and wizards to other witches and wizards, right? Because you couldn't be able to sell them to a nomad because they would have no way of controlling them. Which also makes you wonder, going back to what you were talking about before, how many of the southern plantation owners were wizards? But they also said that there was a lot of bloodshed and torture. And we know what happens when wizards get tortured. You have um, the Gaunt's family. What's her name again? Murrow. Murrow Gaunt. Mm -hmm. I never know. She was unable to use magic very much because she was so abused. So it makes me wonder, like, if the Scourers would abuse and torture and just be terrible to these wizards so badly that they couldn't perform magic as well as they might have been able to. Back on the the, <laughs> the wizard <laughs> western, I'm just thinking about how, like, wizards would go after nomads and how, like, the wand versus the gun would work out. It's just, oh, I love it. I mean, people I have been it. saying for years that someone should have just got a gun and I know. shot Voldemort, right? So. Would a shield charm work against a bullet? I would hope so. I think so. Okay, good. It would just be, like, the bullet that you don't see coming. Yeah. But Westerns, you can't do, like, from behind the back. That's just not... It's dishonorable. Yeah, that's not honorable. Uh I also kind of wish that there had been some kind of mention in this of what contribution the black wizarding community had to the North American culture and wizarding culture, because Africa was one of the three areas she mentioned that already was in contact with each other. So, I mean, they started bringing black slaves over to the Americas in the early 1600s. So, would 
I mean, would these people have already known about each other, and how would that affect the dynamics of the wizarding community? And also the style of magic that is used. There's just no mention of it whatsoever. I know, and there needs to be so much more mention of it, because, like, America, you know, is the melting pot or whatever. But if it's the melting pot for wizards, then how many techniques and how many different spells and how... I mean, you could have a wizard that was using Japanese spells and Arabic spells and, like, all this other stuff. Oh. Super good at potions because they were tutored in a Native American. Like, you know what I mean? Like, there's yeah. so many different possibilities here. The closest we get to that in these is the mention of the one wand maker who was, like, living in the swamps. That's exactly right. what I was just about to bring up. Yeah. Can you imagine Louisiana? Like, no wonder it's, like, known as, like, this cursed yeah. country of, I don't even know, <laughs> crazy stuff happens. Explains Florida, too. <laughs> <laughs> Can anything explain Florida? If anything. <laughs> okay, so the Salem Witch Trials. It wasn't actually, like, as big of a topic in this as I thought it was going right. to be. Because it's me. probably the most well-known bit of American history that has to do with magic. The interesting effect, side effect of this is that pure-blooded wizards and witches did not want to go to America for good reason. Up until the early decades of the 1900s, there were fewer witches and wizards in the general American population than on the other four continents. And pure-blooded families rarely left for America because they were well-informed about Puritans and scours through wizarding newspapers. So there was a far higher percentage of muggle-borns in the New World than elsewhere, which is crazy to think about because living as a muggle-born in the New World is probably increasingly more dangerous than it would be living anywhere else. It would be very hard because also you don't have Hogwarts. You don't have someone who automatically knows that you're magical when you're born. So how do you manifest your magical powers and how do you find someone to tutor you in that also i feel like you could get into a whole bunch of trouble finding the wrong person to tutor you yeah, yeah. also so the international statute of secrecy was signed in 1689 and yet the salem witch trials were going on in 1692 and 93 which is three years after that so that's kind of interesting to me that this huge terrible thing was going on after this law basically saying like you can't make yourself known to nomads has already been been put in place. So it shows that, like, even though this law's been put in place, it took a while for them to sort of draw back and make themselves safe, I want to say. Not safe, but... Ilivermorny was founded in 16, maybe around 30. I don't actually have a full date for that, but she sailed to North America in 1620. And so we'll give her, like, 20 years. 1640. It would have been there for at least two, three decades before the Salem Witch Trial started. So I can imagine that Ilvermorny was a place of solace, and they probably had some way by then of knowing when there were witches and wizards in the community. Hopefully. I hope for those dear Muggleborn children. <laughs> I do like that it's not necessary to be a pure blood to have rank in the wizarding world of America. Yeah. Because the American dream holds true, like, even within the wizarding section of it. It doesn't matter if you were Muggleborn or not. You could become big based on your accomplishments, which is shown by that nomad-born wand maker who was greatly sought after. I don't remember his name right now. Alright, shall we get into Makuza? I keep wanting to say Makuza. So for those who don't know, Makuza is short for Magical Congress of the United States of America. The interesting thing about Makusa is that it does predate the Nomad version by about a century. And it just makes me really interested in knowing how that was taken on the European continent. Because the Nomad version was more of like an FU to England. Was the Ministry of Magic like just happy to be rid of it? Just like, <laughs> you know, you got a lot of issues. I would imagine so, because they had so much going on, and it would be really hard to have any jurisdiction over anything from across the ocean, even with magic to help you. So, Plus, they have all these new creatures that they've never even 
Yeah. Like, there's so many different yeah. magical creatures that they haven't necessarily cataloged. It makes the wizarding version seem a little bit less imperialistic. Yeah. Paints them in a lot better light. It yeah. also makes me wonder if the Makusa or if wizards in general had any influence on the American Revolution or the uh. establishment of the United States government because Rappaport's law wasn't put in until 1790, which is well after all of that. So did they actually have any involvement in that or did they just completely steer clear? So, I mean, there's... I. Most of it's just urban legends, but there's a lot of, like, I don't know, legends and rumors and stuff about magical goings-on with the Founding Fathers, so it would be really fun to include sort of this... Oh, I definitely think some that. of the fun Founding Fathers were wizards. Like, for sure. Okay. General Washington. Your first, your, your first picks for wizards. I mean, Marin. probably Washington and Jefferson. Yeah. I don't know. I think Washington was just too good of a... He's just such a great general. I just think magic was in there somewhere. You know what I mean? Like He got a little too lucky. Yeah, just a little bit too lucky. Yeah, and then Jefferson, I just think that he... I think it would have been so interesting for Jefferson to have been a, be a wizard, because when he was an ambassador to France, he could have been an ambassador for both the magical community and the nomad community. Like, he could have been doing double duty over there. It would just make a very interesting story. Before we get into Rappaport's Law, uh, I will mention Theophilus Abbott. Theophilus Abbott? I think it's Theophilius. Oh, I didn't write it right. <laughs> Theophilius Abbott. Um, he's an American magical historian who identified Scourer families because the Scourer families went underground as soon as Makusa started going after them. That will become really big when we get to Fantastic Beasts has a lot to do with that. And I just like when she names people's names because we just have so few American wizard names. So you just know she had some real people in mind and I would die to know who she was thinking of. <laughs> I just, I feel like we really need to just like talk for a second about how Scour family started with, with the wizards and how they specifically sought after their non-magical children. Do you yeah. remember that? They, like, winnowed out the magical They wi- It said and- that it winnowed out the magical... I was like, did you kill your children? Like, oh, what yeah. did you do? You Are you that evil? Like... Wow. Ugh. I think they would be that evil. It's just terrible. It is. I can't even imagine that. Yeah. Rappaport's law was <laughs> passed in 1790 by Emily Rappaport, who was the 15th president of Makusa. I just like that it's a woman. I'll Me throw too. that out there. Me too. It's surprising yeah what does that say about the wizarding world how separate they already are from the nomad world right well i also think it's interesting because rapaport's law is essentially the wizards saying we're not going to have any contact with the nomadges which is right out this is right when the american government is beginning this is george washington in his second year as president Mm. and so the americans are saying we're done with the british and so it parallels really well because the magical community is like oh we're done with the nomadges so it's just, like, this year, like, this decade of just people being like, I'm out. Like, I'm done. <laughs> the decade of isolationism. Yeah. <laughs> so just to clear things up, because I know it's kind of probably hard to follow us. We're just jumping from thing to thing. <laughs> I do want to read a little bit of a synopsis of the story behind Rappaport's Law. So it happened because of a serious breach and humiliating censure of Makusa by International Confederation of Wizards. Aristotle Twelve Trees. What a name. That's so good. I really want to know, like, why is he named Aristotle? Why Twelve? Why Trees? I don't know. (laughs) He's the keeper and treasure of dragots, which is the American wizarding currency. Yeah. So many little tidbits in the story you're getting. And so his daughter, Dorcas, 
She was a poor student in Ilvermorny, and she preferred looking pretty to being smart. And she fell in love with a scourer nomad named Bartholomew Barebone. That's also a great name. Also wonderful. Great alliteration. It is. <laughs> <laughs> and I was trying to hold it in. <laughs> <laughs> she fell in love with him, and so she started confiding the secret addresses and methods of concealing magic to him. And so he, therefore, stole her wand showed the wand to presses and printed out leaflets about there actually being magic. And at one point, he actually fired, again, I'm assuming, at people that he thought were Makuza workers leaving work, but were in fact no nomadges. And he was therefore imprisoned without Makuza involvement. No one was injured in the incident. Dorcas ended her days in seclusion with a mirror and a parrot for companions. I just gotta say, I feel so bad for Dorcas. I know. <sighs> But can we talk about how she ended her days with a mirror and a parrot? Like, something that's going to show her face and something that's going to repeat her words? Like, talk about, like, the epitome of being like, you were selfish. So, see, and I You ruined everything. I actually have a pretty deep problem with this, because it's always been really clear that J.K. Rowling values, like, smarts over looks. Right. And that's been kind of her thing when it comes to the female characters. It's not Dorcas's fault that she wasn't bright. So, I mean... Imagine that you're this girl who's not very good in wizarding school, but you're pretty and have good social skills. Are you going to focus on your studies and try to be this amazing witch, or are you going to use your social skills to make your life better? I don't think it's necessarily a bad thing. And it bugs me deeply when there are characters that are cast as these awful people because they want to have these social lives or (laughs) value their good looks because they're not smart. It's different when it's a character who is cruel to people who are not pretty or who value smarts over looks, but we don't know that she was ever that way at all. She just wasn't smart. And it's, I mean, she came across this very evil, clearly intelligent and manipulative guy who tricks her. She falls in love with him and she gives away their secrets. I just... (laughs) I feel so bad for her. That's so true. And there's this tragic notion that even over a century later, her name is being a Dorcas. Like, people still use her name. My mom used to call me a Dorcas all the time. (laughs) Mostly because of You have wizards in your family, Mallory. I know. So Rappaport's law enforced strict segregation. Wizards are no longer allowed to befriend or marry nomadges, and there are penalties for fraternizing with nomadges. It's crazy that they went from, like, having pretty much no pure blood prejudices whatsoever to no association with nomadges. Like, right. it's such a flip of I feel like so it's a weird. little different, though, because I think Muggleborns aren't thought of as lesser. Right now. Yeah. I'm not saying because that it's, like, the train of thought. It's just sort of, like, mm. it's crazy that they went from this... I don't know. They present us with this idea of it being so, like, not prejudiced against people who don't have magic to, like, you don't interact with them whatsoever. I mean, I think it's lucky that Ilvermorny is so accepting of anyone with, like, the even the smallest bit of magic. Because otherwise, like, just genetically, the inbreeding would be terrible. <laughs> and so yeah. if you can marry someone who even has just a little bit of magic, like, that's going to make it a lot better. Yeah. So what does this say about wizards and witches who are born into nomad families. Like, how would you do that? I know, like, do you tell your parents? Wow. Well, also, what do you do with squibs? Because you're, I mean, you and your spouse are magical and you give birth to a non-magical child, wouldn't they technically be considered nomad? What do you do with that? But you can't just, like, have them, a lot of squibs, we know, join the nomad or muggle society, but 
they wouldn't want them doing that. So That's they would not just allowed. have to stay in the wizarding community, forced to not be able to perform magic their whole life. For reasons I won't speak clearly about, I feel like this will be resolved in Fantastic Beasts and Where to Find Them. I feel like I'm making this really difficult. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. They're going to cover this for sure. 1920s Wizarding America. I feel like this section was pretty much put in specifically because of Fantastic Beasts, because Absolutely. that's the setting. So, yeah, it's giving us a bit of a background of the world we're going to find ourselves in when we see these films. I love that it starts with World War One. I. I think that's such an insanely interesting war to think about, especially now you're putting in wizards into the mix, because that was the first great war that changed the way wars were done, right? And I think it's really interesting that wizards did participate in this, considering Rappaport's Law, because now they have all these camaraderies that they made with nomads in the same bunkers and the same trenches. And so it makes me wonder if this had an effect on that law, and so like we're going to start looking at this law in a different light now that people are coming back from war. They have war buddies. Do they just, like, pretend that they don't care about their friends anymore? How is that going to affect their ability to think if they have PTSD? And I just think that it's going to be a really big thing in, in 1920s with Fantastic Beasts. Well, I also think it's interesting because, like, how loyal are these wizards to the United States of America? Like, they don't oh, yeah. even, they don't even talk to people who aren't magical. Like, why do they even have an incentive to go to war? You know what I mean? They have to be there because the other sides have wizards, so they have to be able to counter that. But what's their motivation for it? Maybe because the Great War was the first world war, it might have been a little bit scarier. I wonder how this lines up with Voldemort's rise. Does anyone know the time frame for that? I don't know if it would be so much Voldemort as Grindelwald. Uh, I think it would be Grindelwald. I'm trying to think of the timeline, and I think that that yeah. would be it. That makes sense, because it was between semesters that he corresponded with Dumbledore, wasn't it? Yeah. So let's age him 15 years from 1882. That would be 1897 when he was talking with Dumbledore, going into the 1900s. Yeah, yeah that would So it corresponds sense. as Grindelwald was happening about the same time. So I wonder if that was starting to mix in with the World War, since he was from... The that would make sense if it was. Right. So that's probably why the wizards were more involved in this war and not others. That makes sense. I like it. Now that we're done with the first sentence of this section. <laughs> <laughs> There's just so much. Um, it does mention that Makusa was also more intolerant of ghosts poltergeists and fantastic creatures which boo so i'm dumb. so disappointed by this because there is so much american folklore that has to do with ghosts there's so much folklore about different creatures and stuff like she mentions the rougarou there's like there's so much that could be like hey this is an actual magical creature or a magical being what if the ghostbusters was real and they were <laughs> actually just wizards i like it also i think it's interesting that she mentions poltergeists because we are getting more information about poltergeists in two weeks. So I wonder if that's coincidence. Also, it's a really good thing Newt loses all of his fantastic creatures on all of 1920s New York because that makes him just the ultimate Dorcas <laughs> in terms of intolerant to fantastic beasts. Yeah, he's going to get in trouble. Uh-huh. Okay, but there was a great Sasquatch rebellion. Which is amazing. I want to know. See Bigfoot's last stand. It's so good. Okay, can we talk about how the president, uh, Serafina Pickery, is a famously gifted witch from Savannah? Because she's in the new movie. She's from Savannah. 
I just want her to have an accent so badly. Like a southern <laughs> accent. A wizard with southern accents. I'm just really excited. Because <laughs> we're already going to get New York accents, but I didn't realize that we'd have a Savannah witch there, too. Can you imagine, like, spells being cast in southern? I just... Uh, Bless your heart. Lumos. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, that's a terrible accent. <laughs> It also mentions that they have to have a wand permit. Um, we talked a little bit already about how in this area it says that all the witches and wizards were able to use wands. I found it interesting that they all had to get a permit to use wands. I just think it's interesting because it parallels so much with the guns. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> because when the Europeans came to settle America, you know, another reason that they were so successful at colonization was that they had guns. And so for the European wizards, it would have been that they had wands that they didn't have wands. And then here, like, you have to have a gun permit. You have to have a wand permit. Like, it just parallels. I wonder if they get into wand regulation. (laughs) Wand regulation. wonder if they have rednecks posting on their (laughs) wizarding Facebook about how they're trying to take away their rights. (laughs) Sorry, we shouldn't get into that. (laughs) So I want to talk about these wand makers. We talked a little bit about Violetta Beauvais. I wonder, it says that her wands tended to take the dark magic, but... I wonder if that's really true, or if it was just a reputation that was a form of prejudice. To clarify, she's the one from New Orleans. Yes. I did like how she inserted the fact that many heroes use them, including President Pickery. President Pickery was also the one who chose Horn Serpent over the other four houses in Ilvermorny. So I feel like she's almost like the Slytherin redemption. Maybe it's just that Violetta Bubo's wands were particularly powerful. Because I think that a lot of people who have particularly powerful wands automatically try to gain more power by going dark. It's one of the human flaws. But then you have Shikobo Wolf, who's Choctaw. Those wands are intricately carved from Thunderbird tail feathers, and those are powerful wands but those are more difficult to master and transfigurers are more likely to use them which makes sense considering she comes from a Native American descent. Also, Thunderbirds are native to Arizona, so that's an interesting tidbit. How on earth would you... Johannes Jonker? <laughs> so this person was no match born. Often the wands would include Mother of Pearl, which I think would be quite lovely. Mm-hmm. Use the hair of the wampus. He's the one we know least about, so it makes me wonder where he was located. Then we have... I want to say Chiago, that's Portuguese. <laughs> How do you say that? Tiago? 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 I don't know. Quintana. (laughs) He creates wands that are sleek and lengthy and uses the spine of white river monsters of Arkansas to create wands that make spells of force and elegance. I wonder if the white river monster is related in any way to the horned serpent, which is also a... I was wondering the same thing, because it mentions that he alone knew the secret of luring the monsters, and so it made me wonder, is he using parcel tongue? Mm-hmm. I mean, it doesn't specifically say that the White River monster is a serpent of some right. kind, but... I mean, when you picture a river monster, you picture something that looks like a giant snake. At least I do. I do, too. Yeah. Unless it's like some kind of alligator. <laughs> What if this is where Delphi's origins are from? I'm just putting that out there. Okay, we can move on. <laughs> <laughs> and then, anything else about wandmakers? Because the last thing that they mention in all of these writings is <laughs> Seraphina Pickery's quote about alcohol. <laughs> she said, the Google water is non-negotiable. I find that very funny. It's very funny, but it makes me very sad because I had all these ideas of wizard speakeasies and like all of this great well, stuff that would be happening. Speakeasies. That's true. So the nomadges wouldn't find them. 
Yeah. You can hold on to your dream. Okay. I will. I'll <laughs> hold on to him. <laughs> and now for our Scorpius quote of the week, which is a new segment of ours because we love that child. He's so cute. It kills me. I'll let Alexis do this since she saw the play and knows how it should be delivered. <laughs> okay, so this one comes from right after Scorpius comes back from the Darkest Timeline, which I love how he named it that. <laughs> how um, could we not? And so he sees Albus for the first time in a long time, and he's just super relieved. And so Albus is asking, did it work? Did we do anything? And something you don't get from the script is Scorpius singing the next two lines. <laughs> he's like, no. And it's brilliant! <laughs> and then Albus is all, what? We failed! Yes! Yes! And it's amazing! <laughs> <laughs> that makes it so much cuter! I just don't get these things when I'm just reading it. He's just beyond exciting. He's like shimmying in the pool. Maybe not. That's just how I remember it, though. <laughs> Okay, and so the pensive is when we're going to talk about what listeners have said since last episode. We had two of our good friends, Celeste and Mariah, contact us directly about different theories that they've had. So Mariah just had some thoughts on what canon means, and we're pretty much going to devote an entire episode to that, so we won't really get into it here other than just think about it, and if you have any thoughts, you should get a hold of us so we can talk about it some more next time. Yeah, what does canon mean to you? And Celeste came to both Mallory and I to talk about Delphi. She thought that her appearance, you know, her silvery blue hair or whatever, might have arisen from Voldemort not being completely whole because of his horcrux whenever it was that he and Bellatrix did the do. So, yeah, I think that was interesting. That was really interesting. That's all we have for today. You can find us on Twitter at Newtcasts, with an S, at Facebook slash Newtcast, or at Newtcast.com. Please do tweet us. Please do leave comments on our website. We really do want to discuss things with you. And thank you so much, Marin, for coming today. We were so excited <laughs> to have you here. It was my pleasure. <laughs> <laughs> Next time on Newtcast, we are going to be talking about what canon means. Is it canon only if the author wrote it? Is it canon only if it is officially published? Yeah, so please message us with your thoughts and opinions on the matter. We would love to bring them up. All right, we'll see you next time.